Pastor's directing us to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, if you've got, if you're wanting to flip your Bible open, I'll give you two seconds to head in that direction. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to pick up reading toward the end of verse 16 and on through 18, okay? All right, that's 2 Corinthians 6, starting with uh, the last part of verse 16, and here we go. For we are the temples of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Amen. Dave, take your Bible. Take your Bible. It's not Dave's Bible. It's the church's Bible. Uh, and speaking of, I, I said this the other day, but if... Uh, if you just have a Bible on your phone and you want to read an actual one, we have pew Bibles underneath. That doesn't sound like a very nice word, pew. Um, it, we have Bibles under the chairs in front of you. That sounds much nicer, doesn't it? Uh, that you can grab and you can read along. Uh, we, we always have our, uh, our scriptures on the screen as well, but uh, it's also helpful to get your hands on a Bible from time to time. So those are always available for you down there. Well, my goodness, what a week. Um, we had Harvest Fest last week, and... In our house, when we have a very long Sunday with a lot of things going on, we have a little thing that we say happens on Monday, and we refer to it as the Holy Hangover. And I had it in spades on Monday. Uh, I was quite tired, which means we had a really, really good day, right? Uh, it, was just, it was a tremendously wonderful day, and I wanted to just thank everybody who was a part of that. My goodness, it was uh, really, really wonderful. Um, and then yesterday we had, man, things just keep happening. We had our church work day and we painted and cleaned and did all of those wonderful things. And just to create space, really, for people who uh, might come to our church. We wanted, to, we wanted to clean up and tidy up and paint some spaces downstairs so we have more kids' rooms to open up. And um, it bore out because today we needed it. We, they wouldn't have all fit uh, in, the, in the nursery. So, that, so thank you, all of you who came to do that. Um, and along those lines of kids' ministry, uh, we just wanted to say thank you to everybody who does do kids' ministry. It's a tremendous help. But also, we wanted to give a little plug for kids' ministry as well. Because the reality of church in uh, a community like ours is that kids take priority. In some sense, kids take priority over us adults <laughs> uh, in many ways. I said a couple weeks ago that it's, it's our sacred it's our sacred responsibility, right, as, as the church to care for our children. And we are working to staff our, our children's area to its highest capacity. And so what that means is that in every room, and right now we have three, so we have elementary, our nursery, and we have one early childhood room. In every one of our rooms, there is a leader and a helper, right? So right now, that's six, and hopefully jumping to about eight people a week that can help out in our children's area. Now... You might be saying, I, I did my time in children's ministry, which is good and fine. We can promise you at this point that if we get enough hands in, you only have to serve once a month, right? 
Uh, and, as, and as everybody pitches in for that, we're, we will be able to provide the type of care and the type of teaching to our children um, that will really help us, really set us up to create an environment where we can invite more children in. And it's kind of an ever-increasing thing, right? As we create more space for children, more children come, and then we create more space and more children come, and eventually we'll just be overrun with them. And that, and that is fine with me. It really, really is. So um, if you aren't helping out with children's ministry and you would like to, or my words there stirred something powerfully in your heart, um, please uh, see uh, my wife, Ashley, after service, or you could talk to Linda, um, Linda Canfield, or you could talk to the Steins who are back in the elementary like now. We would really appreciate uh, your help. All right? All right. PSA over. So uh, this week... Uh, we are beginning a new series. Uh, for the first six weeks of our time here, we uh, were in the series we were calling Icon that was all about Jesus being the image of God, that Jesus being the picture of God. And today, we're moving on to a different series. That was our old one, and this is our new one. Oh, that's not the name of it. Uh, but we're calling this series Ecclesia. Uh, and Ecclesia is the Greek word for church. It's, this is beginning the process I have of naming every single sermon series I do after a Greek word. Because <laughs> the first one was Icon and this one is Ecclesia. It's just going to keep going that way. And eventually we'll all know Greek. It's going to be great. No, that's a joke. Our next sermon series will be Advent, which is a Latin word. <laughs> Anyways. My goodness. So... Uh, in Greek, the word ekklesia is used to, is the primary word that there's multiple words in the New Testament, but it's the primary word that the writers of the New Testament use to describe the church. And that word ekklesia is taken from the corporate life or public social life of the Greco-Roman world. It was a word that was used to describe in any time a group of people were gathered together. It's actually a compound word um, that means to call out, to call out from among them. It, it means whenever uh, there was a group or a, a voting body or anything like that was gathered in the Greco-Roman world, they referred to it as, a, as an ecclesia, a gathering of people for a purpose. And this word quickly became the word that, that the New Testament uses to describe the people of God, that the people are, of God are called out, right, from amongst the rest of the people to gather together for some specific purpose. They're an ecclesia. They're, they're the called out ones. And over the next few weeks, I want to explore what this idea means for us. This idea of what is the church and what's our mission? What are we called to do? If I'm being honest with you, this is my very favorite topic in all of the Bible, really. I love looking at what the church is and what it's called to do. It's one of my very favorite um, theological concepts. And so uh, today, I just want to talk a little bit about um, what the church is. But in order to talk about what the church is, we have to understand uh, not just what this church is or what the church down the street is. We have to understand what the entire thrust of the New Testament has to say about what the church is because very often we can think in kind of isolated terms that a church is a building with people in it who meet regularly or the building or the church is a denomination, right? Or the church is, um, uh, is just a, a conglomeration of people that have a, four, a 501c3 nonprofit, right? 
But the Bible tells us a different story about what the church actually is and what it is supposed to do. Now, our teaching text today from 2 Corinthians, um, that's 2 Corinthians, if you're voting for Donald Trump. Um, (laughs) But Paul is actually just, (laughs) sorry, it's a political week, right? I I have to make mention of it, sorry. Um, He was wrong in the way he said that passage. Um, What Paul is actually doing here is he's quoting in, the, in our teaching passage that we read for today, he's quoting a number of Old Testament passages. That's why it looks a little different in your Bible, why it looks like it's set out more like poetry than it does like, like prose. And in, this, in these short couple of verses, this, he quotes no less, than, uh, no less than eight Old Testament verses, just in this little passage. So... Uh, I, just, I have it broken down for you just in case you're curious. Um, in verse 16, he quotes Leviticus 26.12, Jeremiah 32.38, and Ezekiel 37.27. In, in just the short couple, the basic sentence there that he has in verse 26. In verse 17, he quotes Isaiah 52.11, Ezekiel 20, verse 34, and Ezekiel 20, verse 41. And then in uh, verse 18, he quotes 2 Samuel 17, or 7.14 and 7.8. He quotes all of those passages in that short uh, description. And what we can learn from that is that Paul seems to be saying that there is some connection between the church, the New Testament church to which he is writing this, this verse in, in 2 Corinthians, and the people of Israel the nation of Israel that we see in the Old Testament. So, the, so Paul seems to think that there's some type of linkage, there's some type of connection between these two people, two groups. And in order for us to understand what the church is, we kind of have to go back and look at the entire story of the Bible to see what God was doing with Israel, what his intention was with those people. And then we're able to come to a somewhat fuller understanding of what the church is in our day. Is everybody tracking? So today we're going to do a little bit of a flyover of the entirety of the Bible. You didn't know you were going to learn about the entirety of the Bible today when you came to church. But we're going to just pick out a couple passages that help us kind of understand what the church is based on what God was attempting to do with Israel and what came to fruition with the New Testament church. All right? We might have to put our thinking caps on for this one. Is everybody ready? You didn't, you didn't know. No, you're not. You just got done with your week and you don't want to think. Um, but we are going to do it. It's going to be great, I promise. So for us uh, to truly, truly kind of understand this, we have to go back to the very beginning. We have to go back to the very beginning of the Bible, both to Adam, the cre- creation of the world and Adam and Eve, but particularly after Adam and Eve, after the fall, after some other things had gone down, when God calls a man, He reaches out to one particular person. He reaches out to Abraham. And in Genesis 17, 7, this is what God says to Abraham as he's reaching out to him. He says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So this same covenantal promise that God makes to Abraham, he makes over and over and over again with Abraham's descendants, with the people of Israel. You see, what God was doing here 
was reaching out to one person in, in Abraham and selecting him out from all the other people, calling him out from all the other people of the earth. And he, in God, covenants with Abraham that he's going to establish through Abraham a people that were defined by himself, that a people that would be defined by Yahweh or by God. And so God begins this process of this covenantal relationship with, with, with Abraham and with Abraham's children and eventually with the entire nation of Israel. So later in Leviticus 26, 12, after the people of Israel have become a people, they've, they've spent time in captivity in Egypt and God has led them out into the desert in the midst of their wilderness wanderings. In Leviticus 26, 12, one of the verses that Paul is actually quoting in our, in our teaching passage from 2 Corinthians today, he says this to his people when they're kind of wander, wandering through the wilderness and they're really wondering if God is actually going to deliver them like he said they would. He says this, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. God says again, he reiterates this idea again over and over. It's this consistent theme if you, if you read the Old Testament through that God is consistently communicating this reality that he has called Israel and that he has a standard and he has a mission even for the people of Israel. So the question is why? Why did God call a people? Why did God go to Abraham, uh, miraculously allow him to have a son, and then out of Abraham and Abraham's family and then his further descendants begin to form for himself a people that would, what in God's language, would be defined by his name. And then he gives them laws and regulations. He gives them a, a system of sacrifice, right? He gives them all of these things. The primary purpose, the primary thing God was attempting to do in that setting was to form for himself a people who would show the, the rest of the world, the rest of the peoples of the world, what God was actually like. You see, Israel was distinctively different from all the other peoples of the, of the earth. They lived differently. And by virtue of this special relationship that they had with God, God intended for them to be a kind of beacon of light and hope. This is why uh, when we hear those passages about a city on a hill that are from the Old Testament, what we're talking about is actually Jerusalem, the actual mountain of Jerusalem. But God wanted, symbolic, both physically and symbolically, Israel to be a kind of city on a hill, an example of what at, at humanity could be at their best, and a picture of what humanity could be when they've partnered with God, when they've become God's special type of people. And by virtue of that special relationship that they hold with God, they communicate to the world not just what, what can happen, but actually who God is and what God is like. God gave Abraham and his people this very solemn and special uh, promise, and, and they in return took a kind of oath that said, we will be your God, you will be our God, and we will be your people, and we, by virtue of the way we live our lives differently from those around us, we will show the world what you're like. And so ultimately, the calling of Israel was to serve and love God, to be God's people, and to represent him, to be his image bearers in, in the form of an actual nation, right? But what happens? If you've read the Old Testament at all, you realize that the people of Israel struggled with this calling, right? They struggled mightily with what God had for them to do. 
And very often they gave themselves over to the worship of idols, gods that weren't there, gods that were kind of imaginary. And by so doing, they, they, lost, they lost their sense of mission. They lost their sense of purpose. They lost what they had actually been called to do. They'd been chosen out from the nations in order to represent God to the world. And what they had actually done was kind of misrepresent God to the world. And this is why God is so frustrated with them. This is why God gets so frustrated when they, when they sin or they worship other gods. It's because in some real and true sense, they were just simply um, marring the image of God in the earth. That the opportunity for people to look and see what God was actually like by virtue of the way that God related to this people was kind of broken. It was torn down or torn apart. And so God wants this people to be raised up to live to the standard that he had first called Abraham to, to be his representatives in the earth. And though we see time and time again that Israel falls short of this, there, there, we do see in the Old Testament some, um, pr some pinpricks of light, some possibility that arises, some hope maybe even, that the people of Israel will be able to live up to this high calling. In Ezekiel 36, 26, it says this, and it's a familiar passage if you've been in the Old Testament at all. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And this promise that, it, that God makes to Israel here is kind of the, it's kind of the hope of Israel that there was coming a day when they would be empowered by God in a real and true way to be able to live the calling that God had for them. You see, the problem with Israel, the issue that they were running into was the issue that we all run into as well. It's the issue of sin. That they couldn't overcome the sin of Adam and Eve. They weren't, they weren't able to overcome the fallenness that was present within them. In some very special sense, they had a special relationship with God, but yet they didn't have like this passage in Ezekiel says, the Spirit of God in them. They still, in some sense, did not have God residing with them. They had to go to a temple, right, to be near the presence of God. They didn't have the, the presence of God residing within them. And so, in some real and true sense, they fall short of their high calling. They are not able to live up to, to the mission that God has for them as his representatives. But Paul, in this passage that we read today, seems to believe that the, the, the New Testament church to which he is speaking, because of his use of these Old Testament passages, seems to believe that the New Testament church to which he is speaking has in some sense taken up the mantle of Israel has taken up the responsibility that was placed upon Israel to be the people of God and to be his representatives in the world. That God has now begun the plan of calling people out from amongst not just one nation, not just one nation but people from all different types of nations to be called out into a special type of people that would be his representatives in the earth. And it's not surprising that the name that these people were called, the thing that they were called, was an ecclesia, 
a group who was called out from amongst for a special purpose. You see, Paul seems to believe that this special people has now, in some very specific and special way, been empowered to be what Israel could not be because Jesus died for our sins, right? Because he took care of the problem of sin that Israel was not able to deal with in in its totality, and by so dealing with it, was then able to put his spirit in our hearts, That Jesus is in some very specific and special way able to dwell with us and empower us to be what Israel was not always able to be. Sometimes they were, but often they struggled. And ultimately, they weren't able to live up to that high calling. Because we now have Jesus, because we now have the Spirit of God, We are, as the church, we as this New Testament conglomeration of people are now able to live the calling that God had originally put on Abraham and Israel, that we would be a people set apart for his name, that he would be our God and we would be his people, and that by following in the way of Jesus, through the empowerment of the Spirit in our hearts, we are now able to live as God's representatives on the earth. The church is no longer one nation, right? We have all kinds of people in this room from all kinds of nationalities, right? Your ancestors come from all over the earth. And yet you're here, right, as one people, in one church, with one calling, serving one Lord, right? And we are here as God's representatives. We are here as God's church. To be a part of the church, the New Testament church, is to be a part of this kind of, is to be the the most recent part of the grand story, the grand narrative that God is telling through the scriptures. You see, the Bible is a kind of, and forgive me, is a kind of meta-narrative. It's a grand story that runs all the way from creation to, uh, to the end, right? And the church is called to play, honestly, the most vital role in the entirety of that grand narrative. The church is called to play this incredibly important role. We are instrumental in God's plan for the cosmos. And if we see that, if we, if we understand that, if we're able to glean that, we are able to see our uh, mission even as the church in new light. You see, very often in America, what we make uh, religion about, what we make Christianity about is we make it this kind of privatized thing. You've heard this, like, just leave, leave your faith out of this. This is, a, this is kind of a public conversation. We hear this from time to time. But if, if we understand the scriptures well, and if we understand what Paul is saying in the Second Corinthians passage, the church is the hope of the world. You being a part of the church is the greatest and most grand thing you could possibly do with your lives. This is true. This is what Paul is saying. And so often we just gather together on a, on a Sunday and we don't always, we don't always see the, the 10,000 foot view of this, do we? 
We don't always understand the 10,000 foot view of this when we go to, when we go to work on a daily basis or, or even maybe when we're painting uh, uh, early childhood area in the basement of a church. We don't always understand that the church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. You, we, the church, not just our church, but every church, right, is God's primary and central plan for the redemption of the world, for the renewing and restoring of our communities and of our hearts. That is God's high calling and his high plan for the church. And until we understand that God has been about this business throughout the entirety of human history, attempting to find for himself a people that would be defined by his name, who could live on mission with him and for him and represent to the earth what he is like, until we begin to understand that idea, we don't fully understand what we as individuals are called to do. Because the reality is, is that we as individuals are called in some very specific and certain way, in the same way that Abraham was called, to, to, to slot into a role at our own individual church, to fulfill a mission within the church based on our giftings, Based on, the, based on the strengths that God has innately given us, based on the reality of the fact that God has placed the Spirit of God in some unique and special way within our hearts. And when we begin to understand that, what, what begins to happen is that things kind of come alive for us. The reality and the significance of what we're doing as individuals comes alive because we realize that we are a part of God's primary and his important mission for the entirety of the world. If you're a part of the church, you are in on the creator of the universe's primary plan for the earth. <laughs> These sound like big ideas, but they just so happen to be true. <laughs> and, as we, as, and as we go about thinking about these ideas, as we go about processing what it means to be the church, as we go about processing what it means to be God's called out people. It's important for us to remember that every week we come to church, we hold this gathering, we hold our own little ecclesia, right? Our own little gathering of those called out from the highways and byways of the Cedar Valley. We hold this gathering not because God requires it of us. We're not, we're not uh, checking off any holiness boxes by being here, right? If you, if you, had, if you had to work today or something else uh, got in your way, if you're sick, you're not in any way, shape, or form sinning. I'm, I'm giving you absolution there. Please all come to church, though. <laughs> Ashley's like, tell them to come to church, though, seriously. Yeah, please be here, because it's good. But what we actually are doing is reminding ourselves of who we actually are. And we're reminding ourselves of the Lord that we serve. Because we as human beings are fairly forgetful. I don't know if you've spent any time with me, but I am a little forgetful. I'm really bad with numbers. Ashley has had the exact same phone number since we were 15. 15 years old, the exact same phone number. And I've called it thousands of times. And if you ask me immediately what's Ashley's phone number, I will not remember it. <laughs> they always ask for it at Caribou because we get reward points, and I always get it wrong the first time. See, we're forgetful people. 
But we come to church to be reminded of two things, primarily. And the two things we come to church to be reminded of is that Jesus is the Lord of the universe, right? That he died for our sins and he was resurrected on the third day. And we come to the church to remind ourselves that we are God's people. Together, we are God's people. And we've been called on mission to be his representatives. And then we go out from this place on after a Sunday, on a Monday or whenever. And we, we begin the process of doing that. And yes, we fall short. And yes, we forget. And yes, we sin. And yes, all of those things happen. But we come to this place. And we come to this table, actually to remind ourselves of who God is and what he has done for us. So today we're going to receive communion. And we're receiving communion today because it is both a reminder, it is basically a reminder of those two things. It is a reminder of the fact that Jesus died for our sins. But, it's, but notice that we don't receive communion by ourselves. You can't receive communion by yourself in your room. You have to receive communion together, right? We have to receive it as a body because we are called to be a body. We are called to be a people together who worship God. We are called in some very specific and certain way to worship God together. And communion reminds us of that reality. Notice the, the Bible says whenever two or three are gathered, right? The promise of the scriptures is that God will be with us in some very specific and special way when we're together, when we worship him together, when we serve him together. We are God's people. He is our God and we are his people. And our calling as his church is to be his representatives and to proclaim to the world in word and in deed the things that he has been saying to us, the things that he has been doing throughout the entirety of human history, that God has a plan, that he has redeemed us from our sins, and that he is working in the world for the redemption and the renewal of all things. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? And today, as we celebrate communion together, we are able to celebrate that real and true reality. So, um, in just a few moments, uh, we'll receive communion. Uh, there's multiple ways to do this. Some, very often in our church's tradition, the, the plates are passed through the table. But today, we just wanted everybody to be able to kind of move because I find that when we move our bodies, it affects our minds and our hearts a little bit. So I like doing it this way. But there's bread and there's juice up here. Um, please get in one of the lines and, and, and receive communion. And after you're done, head back to your seat. But I wanted to emphasize that we practice an open communion here. So that means that if you are a, um, if you're not a member of our church, we still invite you to the table. Uh, all we ask is that you, uh, you follow Jesus or that you at least want to follow Jesus. So, we are one people. We meet at this common table to reaffirm and remind ourselves again that we stand under Jesus, our Lord, together.
the Apostle Paul in his instructions to a divided and wayward church in 2 Corinthians says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup in the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The gifts of God are given for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. The table's open. <laughs>